Podo. Picture in your mind the most iconic buildings in the world. The structures built by humans that have come to best illustrate man's capacity for innovation, imagination and industrialization. The ones you'd see illustrated in bright colours on a children's book called Hey kids, look what we've achieved. Chances are you're thinking of something like the Eiffel Tower, the Burj Khalifa or the Pyramids of Giza. Something vertical, something whose very aspiration seems to pierce the sky. But on the western bank of the Potomac River, technically in Arlington, but with the whitewashed cupola of the Jefferson Memorial set slightly behind, giving the impression of being nestled in Washington, D.C., is a building that doesn't demonstrate much vertical ambition. It lies with almost lazy flatness, sandwiched between vast car parks. When it was built in the 1940s, on the site of a suburban slum known locally as Hell's Bottom, President Roosevelt was said to admire the new building for its unique shape. It had been designed to fit in a different plot of land, where they had been limited by a five-sided boundary. But now, this enormous edifice, still the largest low-rise office in the world, it said, had assumed a form that would be known, and feared, the world over. From the ground it looks like little more than your bog-standard civic building, bland and discreet, like the men and women hurrying in and out. But from above... It's another story. Just as the operations of the US Department of Defence have been neither bland nor discreet in the 80 years since its construction, nor, when viewed by birds, passing planes or depressingly patriotic astronauts on the ISS, was its home. It was, and is, a perfect Pentagon. But this is not the story of the Pentagon. This is the story of the Donut. And yes, we're spelling that D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T. This is the story of GCHQ and how one man blew the operation wide open. This is the town that knew too much. I'm Nick Hilton. Peter Ullathorne, the project principal for the design of the new GCHQ building, was unable to talk about this subject for the podcast due to the constraints of the Official Secrets Act, but he did provide a statement, which is read now by an actor. A new accommodation project was initiated by the then director, Sir David Ormond. A building that was clearly almost impossible to expand and therefore incur cost increases would be favoured by the Public Accounts Committee of the House of Commons. There was a need to bring together and improve communications between various departments of GCHQ, and the circular format was the optimum response for this requirement. The need for an efficient space-envelope ratio and the requirement for zero expansion potential. GCHQ moved to an almost entirely open plan. There was no mahogany row. The sheer scale of the circularity of the plan ensures that the experience of the curvature of the walls internally is slight. The iconic donut represents a gathering of the finest minds and technology in the UK in terms of signals intelligence, serving a wide range of civil, government and military clients. There is a close collaboration between GCHQ and members of the Five Eyes intelligence community. There is no truth in the press speculation that Centre Court Wimbledon, within three minutes walk of my house, acted as an inspiration, as contained in the Times. 
Now, I would never accuse Peter of having been influenced by the design of centre court. It's clear to any tennis fan that it looks much more like number one court. But debates over stadia aside, the new building gave GCHQ an instantly identifiable base camp and a genuine cutting-edge facility to replace its historic campus. So I was aware of, of GCHQ in a very literal sense because I used to cycle past it every day on the, on the way to school. That's the voice of Jeff Dyer, a writer and Cheltenham native. I didn't have any sense of it being some sort of hub of espionage, of being in any way related to, oh, like the place in that French series, Le Bureau or anything. There was no sense of James Bond-like intrigue lurking there. It wasn't especially cordoned off as a high-security place. It, It never felt particularly forbidden. It was just, I guess, some place that one took for granted. And I guess it was just some sort of government place. It was different to these various corporate places like the Eagle Star or the M&G. But it's not something that exuded secrecy or something. It wasn't even something that particularly, it was just there really as a place where, where government people worked, where the civil service worked, perhaps. I guess it would be in my 40s, uh, some new people moved next door to, to my parents. It's really nice yet young couple, really lovely. He worked at GCHQ. And looking back now, my parents didn't have Wi-Fi. And at various times, I needed to uh, sort of use their Wi-Fi. And it was always an incredible production using his thing. And when I was trying to um, do that thing of logging onto his Wi-Fi, it didn't come up on my screen that, you know, that bit of uh, thing to show there's a there's a Wi-Fi, whatever. Clearly, his Wi-Fi connection had been somewhat buried, hidden from view. I guess I should also stress how we accepted the separation of, of things. So growing up, for example... In Cheltenham, there are those two famous public schools, the Boys' College and the Girls' College, and we knew they were there. I walked past them. Needless to say, I never met anyone from either place until I went to Oxford, and of course never met anyone who worked at GCHQ until uh, until these people moved in next door to my parents, when, as I say, when I was in my 40s. This new building, the Donut, was a clear mirror of its American cousin, the Pentagon. And it was within these walls of the Anglo-American alliance, the special relationship on which, for better or worse, much of 20th century history was built, grew ever more tangled. Tangled like a set of fairy lights stuffed in a shoebox. Tangled like the tales of the semi-mythic Rat King, where filth and proximity cause a mischief of rats to act and move as a single ungodly organism. And then, in 2013... That mess was publicly and violently disentangled by a bespectacled computer scientist from Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And the donut was opened up, spilling its jam for the world. This is the story of Edward Snowden and the NSA GCHQ leaks, as told by the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists who unearthed it. It all started in January of 2013. If you're struggling to remember what the world was like at that time, Norwegian chess grandmaster Magnus Carlsen had just broken Garry Kasparov's 13-year FIDE rating record of 2848 with a rise of 2861 after victory at the London Chess Classic. And it was into this brave new post-Kasparov world that Edward Snowden, 
an NSA contractor with Booz Allen Hamilton, reached out to American-born Guardian columnist Glenn Greenwald about a treasure trove of data he had amassed. That first contact lit the blue touch paper on one of the biggest stories of the 21st century. Janine rang me up and right from the outside, we were quite paranoid about talking on open phone lines. So she was speaking in code, which I I eventually deciphered and um, managed to convey to me that they had a stonking story from a stonking source and it was all going to be very problematic and, and tricky to deal with, especially in talking about it. That's the voice of Alan Rusbridger, at the time editor of The Guardian. He has recently been appointed as editor of Prospect magazine and sits on Facebook's oversight board. I could tell from her tone of voice that this was big. We worked out then how to talk reasonably openly about it. And the first decision was, did we go and meet Edward Snowden in Hong Kong? And that sounds like an obvious thing to to say now, but I, I know the the Washington Post took a different decision and decided not to go and meet him. So, you know, right, right from the beginning, there were there were big choices to be made. A lot of investigative reporting is like that. You follow a hunch. Sometimes you spend a lot of time and money and, and, and nothing comes of it. Um, in this case, it was a couple of plane tickets to get Glenn Greenwald out to Hong Kong and, and Ewan. I very much wanted Ewan to be there because although Glenn had been doing you know, a lot of very interesting work for The Guardian. I'd never met him. You know, we had hired him. He was living in Rio. He wasn't on The Guardian staff. He was a particular kind of voice. But I thought on a story this big, I have to have somebody I know in the room and I know and trust. When I first heard about Snowden, I I didn't think it was necessarily a big deal. That's the voice of Ewan McCaskill, formerly The Guardian's defence and intelligence correspondent. He retired from the paper in 2018. I was based in New York for The Guardian at the time. I'd been in Washington for seven years as US bureau chief for The Guardian. Before I left, I wanted to go up to New York because they had a very young team there. So I wanted to go up and sort of learn from them. I was up and I was working in the New York newsroom. It was a Friday afternoon. I almost didn't get in that day. It was a nice day and I thought maybe I'll be a tourist and just hang around Manhattan. But I had a piece to finish, so I... I diligently went in. Otherwise, I might have uh, missed the Snowden scoop. The US editor at the time, Janine Gibson, who's a fantastic editor, called to me across the newsroom floor and said um, she wanted a word and said, uh, I want you to go to Hong Kong tomorrow. I says, sure. I says, what's happening? She says, there's somebody claiming to be a spy who wants to leak his documents. And we both sort of half laughed because, I mean, as you know, People come to news organisations all the time claiming to have leaks and information. And you check it out and most times either there's nothing there or it's only part of a story. We didn't know who it was. Well, I didn't know who, who was in Hong Kong. Do you think it might be some sort of crank? It might be a hoax. It might be somebody disgruntled, you know, coming towards the end of their career. Snowden is one of those rarest of stories. He was a real deal, a real whistleblower acting out of principle, not for money or to be famous. But at the time, when I flew to Hong Kong with Glenn Greenwald, and uh, uh, who was a Guardian colleague, and Laura Poitras, an uh, independent filmmaker, and the three of us went to Hong Kong, I, I didn't think it was necessarily that big a deal. And even, and in fact, the night before publication of the first story, I was talking to Laura and Ed Snowden, and they both thought this is going to be a huge story, and I thought, maybe it's a bit too technical. I'm not sure readers, public will necessarily understand it. 
I know I wasn't even sure the Guardian would splash it, but when that story appeared, it just went whoosh. And then the one after that was even bigger. And they just kept building till Snowden revealed himself as the whistleblower. And that was one of the biggest stories the Guardian ever had in terms of you know reach. We had this little silly code that, that Ewan would text me. And he texted me, the Guinness is good. That was the agreed phrase. So I, I knew that you know the basic decision was was this source genuine and was the material what he said it was well uh, the guinness was good that meant yes and then we had various encrypted forms of um communication in which ewan said if they managed to get this all done and and written this would be easily the biggest story he'd ever worked on the guinness is good a phrase you're quite likely to hear muttered in the towns and cities of nigeria which now consumes more Guinness than the Irish, not to mention that 40% of the world's Guinness is brewed under licence in West Africa, though less likely, slightly, to be spoken in English, as Nigeria is home to some 527 or more distinct languages, from Abon to Zumbun. But the Guinness was good. Snowden had delivered a stash of data that, if properly analysed and interpreted, had the power not just to blow the lid on the covert surveillance practices that were going on around the globe, but to entirely recalibrate people's perception of the world they're living in. Snowden was asking a fundamental question, a question that human civilization must ask itself again and again until finally the answer is no. Can you pay for the safety of the collective with the freedoms of the individual? Right from the beginning, it was plain that this was going to be extremely complex and so it turned out, and it was by some country miles the most complex story I ever got involved with, legally, ethically, morally, technologically, in terms of national security, in terms of public opinion. When I say legally, we had to think of the law of the UK, but also the, the law of the United States and, and possibly the law of Hong Kong. So it, it was fraught with difficulty. And you know, I could see early on that all those things would be brought into play. I obviously didn't have answers um, to all those questions in the first five minutes. But we had, by that time, we had done you know a lot of work on WikiLeaks. We'd done a lot of work on phone hacking sort of you know big quite high profile investigations so we were if you like a, a bit battle hardened we weren't coming to this wet behind the ears he was so young he was 29 at the time i know 29 is not that young but he looked about 21 and yet he said he'd been a computer specialist uh, he'd trained in the army special forces he'd worked for the cia in geneva he'd been based for the national security agency in Hawaii, back in Maryland, in Japan. And you looked at this guy, and, he, and as I say, you looked at about 21, and you thought, how is it conceivable he's done all these things? But his story stacked up. Everything we wrote at the time has been gone over by lots of journalists, by officials, but everything he said turned out to be true. The other thing that struck me was uh, he was paranoid. And again, that made me suspicious. I thought he would do strange things like, he cushions up the side of his door in case somebody was listening in. When he was putting on his laptop and putting in his password, he'd put a red hood over his head in case there was a spy camera in the room. When he left his room, which wasn't very often, he'd put a glass of water down over a piece of uh, tablecloth or uh, with a stain in it from soya sauce. So if somebody opened the door when he was out, tipped over the glass of water onto the soya sauce, he would see that the design had changed and he would know somebody had been in his room. So all these things, I thought, 
this guy's slightly off the wall, but now I realise he had very good reason to be paranoid. At that time, the NSA police and a whole, whole host of others were already looking for him. We had this quite strange thing early on where we worked on the NSA from the New York office and on GCHQ from London. That's the voice of James Ball, a former reporter at The Guardian. He is now global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and author of The System, Who Owns the Internet and How It Owns Us. Initially, I'd flown over to New York and while Glenn and Snowden and uh, Ewan McCaskill were in the hotel room, we were getting the first documents through to, to New York and doing stories about PRISM and about NSA surveillance. And then basically we heard Ewan had hopped on a plane with a hard drive and so we hopped on a plane to meet him in London, you know, with all our various degrees of jet lag. We kind of had Ewan hand over this encrypted hard disk and just one note from Edward Snowden because he didn't really know the GCHQ stuff very much and hadn't really gone through it, just with the word tempora on it. And that was sort of what kicked us off. And I think I would have felt a sort of quite severe panic at that point about the kind of quantity of stuff to go through there. Were you were you able to sort of stand back and take a methodological approach to sifting through so much data or were you just kind of overwhelmed by crisis is going to be my life? Um, it's hard to know whether you're in raw panic or whether you just sort of don't quite think properly about what you've exactly you've got in your hands. We were helped by the facts... The Guardian had reported all of Chelsea Manning's leaked documents through WikiLeaks, and I'd obviously worked at WikiLeaks. And so this wasn't our first time suddenly with a few hundred thousand classified documents in our hands, even if these were, you know, much more secret than what had gone before. We had a, a locked room with air-gapped computers that had never been on the internet and a sort of quite fancy search tool similar to stuff lawyers use to go through big sets of documents uh, for cases. And so we loaded it into this computer that had never been on the internet and into this search tool as we decrypted it. And I can sort of remember doing that and it taking up till about midnight, one o'clock in the morning. One of the reporter kind of stayed up with me. And obviously the idea had been we'd check it finished and then start the next day. But we'd been given that magic word, you know, that tempora keyword. And so we typed that in and sort of that started us with about 15 documents to kick us off and have a look through and became, I think, probably the biggest story that we did in the UK. Everything you have ever searched on the internet, everything. is now in a vault at GCHQ. Every email you've ever written, every text you've ever received, every call you've ever made has been stored. Snowden was a story of unavoidably huge proportions. Suddenly, Cheltenham was the centre of the Western European front of global breaking news. Sandwiched in a horrific 21st century panini between 9-11 at the start of the new millennium and the COVID-19 pandemic in... Oh, God, it's still going on. Snowden brought a Homer Simpson-esque level of attention to the donut. The COVID pandemic may subsequently have displaced Snowden as the global North's crisis, but both have strong links in a way. 
to Cheltenham. At the end of the 18th century, the world was still beset by a singular scourge, smallpox. It's a horrific disease with a 30% mortality rate. In the final 100 years of its existence, it was estimated to have killed 500 million people. Before that, it's almost impossible to collect data. Long story short, people were terrified of falling ill. There was a way of preventing smallpox called variolation, which involved infecting people with a mild sample of the actual smallpox virus. For obvious reasons, this was extremely dangerous. But it set in motion a train of thinking that eventually led Gloucestershire-based physician Edward Jenner to an incredible discovery. Jenner entered the scene with the idea of taking, instead of smallpox, doing the same procedure, injecting something under the skin, but with cowpox. That's the voice of Michael Kinch, a medical innovation analyst at Washington University in St. Louis, and author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. Jenner was not actually the first person to conceive of this idea. He was probably about third, but he was the first to popularize it widely. And so it became very routine. And actually, he would use cowpox. And the Latin term for cow was vaca. And so that's where we get the word vaccine. There was a a farmer in Yetminster, England, which was not too terribly far away, who was probably the very first. And he uh, was a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Jesty. And he he put together the idea that milkmaids, which were known for having beautiful skin, that beautiful skin was because the skin wasn't pockmarked. Their faces weren't full of the smallpox scars that most people of the time faced because they had dealt with smallpox. And he put two and two together and realized that these milkmaids got an infection on their hand called cowpox. And he actually ended up what we would today call vaccinating his wife and kids with his wife's knitting needles using an approach that was similar to variolation because he himself had been variolated. And when the local townspeople found out about it, because his wife's arm became infected and she went to the doctor and the doctor found out and turns out he was a town gossip. And so when the local townspeople found out, he and his family were run out of town because there was a true fear that they were, would turn into some minotaur-like creature and terrorize the village. Jenner came up with the idea. He was probably influenced by conversations that were occurring. Science oftentimes occurs many times in many places at roughly the same time because people use information and they start to put it together and people started to put it together that what is it about milkmaids? Oh, they tend to get this infection on their hands, cowpox. And so might we use the cowpox to prevent smallpox? Jenner's offices were based in Cheltenham, which was still enjoying the reputational sunshine of King George III's visit in 1788. Jenner's vaccine, so named from the Latin vacca, meaning cow, became something of a core celebre among polite English society. But smallpox was a global disease, a true pandemic, and getting the vaccine out to the world presented challenges that the world of the early 19th century was ill-equipped to deal with. The traditional way to get from town to town was they would take the lymph from one of the sores from the cowpox pustule on somebody's arm, and they would put that on some dried lint or something. And that was okay moving from town to town, village to village. But even going from, say, Paris to London, it would die because the vaccine is fragile. It can't live very well outside the human body. That's the voice of Sam Keane, a science writer and author of The Ice Pick Surgeon, Murder, Fraud, Sabotage and Other Dastardly Deeds Perpetrated in the Name of Science. 
So they realized they needed to keep it alive in some sort of warm-blooded creature. And the Spanish crown eventually hit on the idea of using orphan boys to do this. And it's not clear exactly why they picked orphan boys specifically, but essentially the boys couldn't really refuse or resist this. They were kind of helpless people. The crown decided, well, we're going to send them across to the colonies. We will give them a new life there. Life probably would have been pretty bleak, didn't have many options or opportunities in Spain, but it's not like they really consulted them. And it's not like they could have given their consent anyway, considering some were as young as three years old. So what they did is they rounded them up. They got, I think, about two dozen or so of them, and they put them on a ship. And right before the ship took off, they gave two of them the vaccine that had the cowpox in it. Then they were at sea for, you know, a week or so. And those two boys developed little pustules on their arms with the fluid in it. And then when those pustules were nice and ripe, they would pop the pustule and then they would infect the next two boys. And then a week or so later, those next two boys, they would have the pustules on their arm. They would pop that, take the fluid out and infect the next two boys in the chain. So essentially it was a way to keep the vaccine, the virus alive in a chain of orphan boys as they went across the ocean. It's in incredibly clever as a kind of a technological workaround based on the times but it's more than a little bit uncomfortable morally uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> how do you kind of square that with the in both scientific terms and historical terms and then also with modern modern ethics with modern ethics it's not hard to square i mean it just wouldn't happen nowadays it's just it's just not acceptable nowadays in historical terms they were thinking of a couple of things one the cowpox vaccine was pretty safe a second, as I mentioned, they were going to give them an opportunity to kind of start a new life that they would not have had in Spain. So they were offering them something, even if they probably didn't understand when they're three years old what they were being offered. It really was amazingly effective. And it spread around the world in an incredibly short amount of time. Within a decade of Jenner's first work, you had people getting vaccinated in East Asia, pretty much everywhere in the world, people were getting the vaccine. So it spread incredibly quickly, especially considering the time and how slow transportation was then. To what extent are vaccines the most important kind of technological development we will ever, as a species, do? Or is it just a kind of attritional thing that viruses come along, we develop vaccines, and we're kind of constantly going to be in, in a sort of pendulum, but never actually able to kind of achieve a kind of a final victory over viral illnesses? It's been argued that other than clean water, no human invention has saved more lives than vaccines. And, and I'm guessing that that is true. Second of all, we need to understand that we will never win the war against infectious diseases. There are so many potential you know, germs, viruses and bacteria that are out there and they are evolving very rapidly. And as we've seen with COVID, even something that you can protect against a vaccine is put under pressure by nature to mutate so that it won't be. And so we will never win that war. And I like to tell people that it's very much hubris on our part to think that we are at the top of the food chain. We are not. Viruses eat us. And so that is something that we need to realize is that we can never let our guard down. And 
I mean, the good news is that if you look at the period since the middle of the 20th century, antibiotics and new vaccines have protected us against many different infectious diseases, but that war will never end. And I think that we sort of let our guard down and assume that we had won. And we will, especially in a warmer climate, experience more and more deadly diseases. And COVID-19 might be one example. Certainly chikungunya, you know, Zika, and many other viruses are out there that we still don't have the ability to prevent with vaccines. In one of human civilization's happier endings, the smallpox virus was successfully eradicated. Safer samples retained for scientific purposes and held in secure facilities in the US and Russia. What could go wrong? In the wake of Snowden, global order did shake somewhat, like my dog confronted with a vacuum cleaner. The global intelligence community closed ranks and Snowden fled to Moscow, where he still lives in exile. And it's a funny one. For all the disorientation of the revelations, for all that the world was not as it seemed, little changed. Few people displayed the energy required to keep the story going. The default public position on bulk collection seemed to be, I wouldn't want the government reading the dirty texts I sent to my significant other, but I'm not doing anything illegal, so why would I really care? Privacy activists were stung by a perceived association with the groups that were anti-data collection for nefarious purposes. Groups who, in the public imagination, could be loosely divided into terrorists and paedophiles. Within the intelligence community, there was a very real fury with the way that the leaks had been disseminated by both the whistleblower himself and the press who handled him. When you take on that kind of job, you sign up to a code of secrecy, uh, which is fully justified, because if your adversaries know exactly how you are going about trying to find out about them, they will simply dodge. That's the voice of Sir David Omand, former permanent secretary at the Home Office who was director of GCHQ in the 1990s. Snowden stole a lot of material from GCHQ, which had been mirrored over to the National Security Agency. And that contained some very sensitive material and names of people, for example. It also contained a lot of information about support to military operations, which had nothing whatever to do with Snowden's alleged complaint about NSA surveillance on domestic uh, telephone uh, intercepting. So that sense of something has gone badly wrong. He was a contractor and doesn't appear to have been properly vetted or properly supervised. And I think the National Security Agency went out of its way to send senior people over to apologise in person to GCHQ. But one of the main complaints, I think, is that he didn't exhaust his remedies. And it's one of the rules. If you're going to be a whistleblower and meet the standards set by the United Nations, then there are three conditions you have to meet. One is you have to have a genuine public interest in what you're going to disclose. And Snowden could say that certainly one of the NSA programs, the Warrantless Interception Program, had not been fully explained to the overseers in the Senate. But then you have to exhaust your remedies, which he clearly didn't do. He just took the material and ran out of the country and handed it over to journalists. So if he had, for example, taken a few documents relating to his principal concern, which was this internet espionage surveillance of American citizens, and marched in, flanked by the editor of the New York Times and the editor of the Washington Post, and marched in to the Senate Oversight Committee and said, you guys have not been told the full story of what is going on here. 
under the heading of the war on terror and told them there would have been a political fuss. President Obama would have ended up doing what President Obama ended up doing, which was pulling that program back and putting it on a proper legal footing. And he'd be a hero. Instead, he steals everything he can get his hands on, including material with nothing whatever to do with his uh, public interest case, and runs off with it and hands it over to the journalists and puts a lot of people's operations in direct jeopardy. And then the third thing you have to do is minimize the collateral damage, the fallout from your operations so that innocent people don't suffer. Well, he admitted on television that he hadn't even read all the material he handed over to the journalists. So on all those counts, it's pretty reprehensible behavior. Do you get the sense there was a very tangible, real-world, dangerous consequences to the Snowden leaks? Yes. Yes, I do. Again, it comes back to that principle about making sure you don't cause too much unintentional damage. The sheer volume of material that he took, the fact that he handed it over without vetting, then having to trust the journalists that they would understand enough to know which bits to publish and which bits would be unsafe to publish. Now, they did their best, particularly The Guardian. Not all the newspapers that had it applied the same amount of care. So that material was at, was around, that it was potentially damaging. That's not a good situation at all. Well, I, I wouldn't want to comment on the number of documents Snowden took. That's Alan Rusbridger again. In terms of what we did, we used a tiny proportion. I used to say 2 or 3%. It was something of that order. And we established very firm rules around what we would use and what we not only wouldn't use, we wouldn't even look at. So I said, you know, this is not a brand tub for stories about legitimate, you know, military operations or foreign policy operations. We're not we're not going to write about that. We're not even going to look at it. And before the New York Times became involved, I got them to sign an undertaking. And we absolutely stuck to that. And at various times reporters from ProPublica or New York Times said, oh, look, can't we just do something about this, this or this? And my answer was always no. You know, of course, I understand that GCHQ did not welcome this. They, they I'm sure, have a, a darker view of Snowden than, than than others. But I have had conversations with people in the intelligence world in which they acknowledge that The Guardian behaved responsibly in in the way we handled it. It was not sustainable to be stretching the the laws that existed really were created in the era of copper wires to the unbelievable capability that the state now has not only the state obviously the big tech companies but there are the dangers of the state piggybacking on the big tech companies to surveil uh, every aspect of our lives and so i, I think Actually, what, what the consequence of the Snowden revelations was that Parliament, for the first time, discussed openly the capabilities that the intelligence services said they wanted. They got most of them. Uh, it's now on a legal and open footing. And I think the more reasonable members of the intelligence community I think that was a good, end, a good ending. It was a good place to end up. And it was bound to happen at some time. For my own part... I think there's no healthy approach to this story that doesn't involve an attempt to be, at the very least, equivocal, and at best, open-minded. The history of spying is a history of double agents, of calamitous human error, of leaks. Inverted for point of comparison, that is what spying is. 
placing unsuspected people in positions to gain some knowledge advantage, exploiting the human weakness of your enemies, seeking whistleblowers who will dump tranches of their own regime's data into your lap. But GCHQ is a government agency, the clues in the name, Government Communications Headquarters, endowed with all the power and public responsibility that entails. Edward Snowden is some kid from Elizabeth City, a place best known for hosting the North Carolina Potato Festival and its prestigious prizes like the National Potato Peeling Contest and Little Miss Tater Tot. Even The Guardian, for all its prize-winning and ethically conscious journalism, is a private company. And whilst its owners might not be trying to colonise the moon, they've not been given their platform by the motions of democracy. And so, when intelligence agencies do battle with other intelligence agencies, there's a sense of fair game. The rules of engagement are understood and have been that way since time immemorial. But if it's an intelligence agency versus a private citizen or a private company or just a troll-faced sock puppet social media account, the challenge is suddenly very different. In the world of George Smiley or James Bond, it's just not cricket, but it is the future. The last couple of decades, last few decades, have seen a kind of sea change in communications and how communications are done and how therefore privacy and surveillance are done. To what extent do you think that kind of we as a society have come to terms with what the internet means for what privacy is going to be going going forward? Have we had that reckoning yet? I don't think we have had that reckoning because it's generally just made easy for us to not think about it and not do anything about it. That's James Ball again. Most of us nebulously kind of care about it, but when you're faced, say, when browsing the internet with that constant cookie pop-up on every page you go to, I've been a privacy journalist for 10 years and I click click it every time to get rid of the damn thing. The defaults are made quite easy for us to spread our info around, but we do tend to find there's a backlash whenever things sort of creep a bit too far or alert us to it. You know, when WhatsApp was going to do quite minimal extra data sharing, tens of millions of people across the planet quit it. You know, Signal went from 10 million people to 50 million. Apple, now that they've made it harder for apps to share data, I think about 95% of users are turning off app data sharing. So I think on a personal level, we sort of care about it, but in this diffuse way that, you know, the internet's let us slip quite a long way down the path without thinking about it. I don't think that means we won't have that reckoning and we won't pull back from it a bit. We talk quite a lot in terms of these big private companies, you know, the tech giants. But is that the most kind of important thing to deal with in terms of data collection? Or is it these kind of state actors who can perhaps do it on a even bigger scale? I think people sometimes talk about private company data collection and state data collection as if they're separate and inevitably the two join up and feed into each other. If you have huge pots of data available on you, governments will want it uh, for good reasons as well as for bad reasons. Similarly, if governments have huge stocks of data, it's not long till someone says, hey, you could monetize this, you know, that would help you pay for public services. And, and so we tend to look at them as separate issues, but the two of them constantly feed each other in either a virtuous or a you know terrible cycle, depending on your view. I think it's going to be one of, one of the big struggles of the 21st century. We're about to see a big struggle over in, end-to-end encryption. 
And you can absolutely see why end-to-end encryption is desirable stroke necessary. A lot of the end-to-end encryption was originally invented by the State Department because they wanted dissidents in repressive countries to be able to talk to each other safely. I, I think we would all be appalled if our medical records or our bank records weren't safe online. And for that, you need end-to-end encryption. But of course, you can understand from GCHQ's point of view and the, 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 some bits of the state also want to get into those uh, those communications because they might be used for terrorism or pornography or pedophilia or whatever. But those two things are very difficult to reconcile. All I can say is that in, in America, they had something called the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, PCLOB, and Obama, his response to our revelations was to commission two reports from this board, which had both secure cats and civil libertarians and and human rights people on because somebody has to work out how to resolve these issues. If you're going to have an incredibly powerful state which can peer into our lives, you have to have effective oversight of it. Otherwise, we're into a sort of Orwellian situation. The next 100 years for GCHQ will be a losing battle to keep up with the untrammeled, unregulated, uncivilized world of the internet. The ethics of bulk collection aren't going to play much of a role in a world where NHS servers can be held ransom for Bitcoin. The enemy, that nebulous thing, is not going to speak any particular language or work in the ruling party offices. They're going to be everywhere and nowhere. They're going to look like you or me. Maybe they'll even be you or me. Nothing is quite what it seems. You wheel your trolley around a supermarket in Cheltenham, passing by buttoned-up, clean-shaven, well-turned-out people. People who might have spent their professional careers sifting through your emails, texts, phone calls, blog posts, tweets, Instagrams, podcasts, Christ. Shopping orders, ticket purchases, Google searches, Bing searches, Reddit searches, your photo library, your credit card history, your GPS data, which apps you use on the toilet and how long you use them for. When you go for a run, where you go for a run, when you don't go for a run at all and instead use your Starbucks loyalty app to buy a raspberry and white chocolate muffin. Sifting, searching, panning for gold, that needle in the haystack. But all of this, everything GCHQ does and everything that Edward Snowden exposed, is because the world has secrets. You search for the needle in the haystack because you don't want to be blithely bailing hay only to find yourself pricked. But... That's the best case scenario. We might just as easily find ourselves living in a world where you're struggling to find that piece of hay in a stack full of needles. Who knows what goes on when people draw their curtains? Who knows what lies just beneath the surface waiting to get out? Who, when push comes to shove, really knows you? Don't forget that the devil is buried on a hill in Gloucestershire. He sits there waiting, smoking his pipe biding his time. This has been the seventh and final episode of The Town That Knew Too Much, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The music is by George Jennings. 
based on the planets by Gustav Holst. You also heard the song GCHQ by Marky Ledge, reproduced here by Kind Permission, and voice acting was provided by Scott Westwood. Check out his YouTube and TikTok, Kazaskoot. This is the seventh part of a seven-part series available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. If you've enjoyed the show, please go to Apple or wherever and leave a rating and review and recommend it to your friends who can now binge it in its entirety. Thanks for listening. The Town That Knew Too Much is a Podo podcast. That's P-O-D-O-T. For more information, visit podopods.com.